The following is audio from The Refuge Church. Every sermon is an invitation to understand, obey, and enjoy God. More information about The Refuge Church is available at therefugechurch.us. Good morning, Refuge Church. Oh, man. Didn't you guys have enough coffee? Good morning, Refuge Church. Well, my voice is suffering uh, this morning because I started doing this thing recently. I decided to start coaching. Yeah. And if you want to see the passionate side of Ibrahim, like passion at a hundred level, you have to watch me as a coach. Because, oh man, I was screaming up and down at my kids, like, you gotta defend, be over there. And the parents were behind me, and I, I, and I was just screaming at them. And I was worried that some parent will think, oh, I'm a jerk, stop screaming at my kids. But as I was watching them, they were also screaming at their kids. So I felt like I was in a very safe space. And they're like, Ibrahim, you just do your thing. Thank you. So my voice is suffering a little bit this morning. And so uh, pardon me for that. I will try to project as much as I can. Though most people accuse me of having a soft voice, it's not intentional. That's just who I am. So thank God for Bob. He'll up my voice for me. And so last week, uh, we started a new series uh, on the kingdom. And Daniel introduced uh, the idea of the kingdom for us. And so in the next few weeks, uh, we will be talking about the kingdom of God, what it means, what it entails. And this is, I mean, that sermon series is packed. And this morning, I'll be uncovering, title of my sermon is, The Kingdom of God is the Good News. And our intro for this sermon series is this. You were made to be part of something bigger than yourself. Something bigger than any job or hobby or political party or even your own family. God made you first and foremost to be a part of his family and his kingdom. God's kingdom is your ultimate allegiance. When you understand the good news and the kingdom and become a child of God, everything else finds its right and healthy place in your life. In this sermon series, we invite you to see the kingdom of God and submit yourself completely to the life-giving authority of Jesus. In our passage uh, this morning, I have two passages that I'll be looking at. The first one is Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. And it says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. And then Luke chapter 4, verse 43. But he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. 
I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other town also because that is why I was sent. And so before we dig into my passage, just want to make a few things clear. So the Gospels use the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, but they are the same thing. The reason for this is because for a Jew, the name of God is so holy that you don't want to say it all the time, right? And so Matthew, for example, who is the Jewish of the gospel writers, he used the kingdom of heaven 30 times in his gospel and then used the kingdom of God only three times because the name of God carries such reference that you don't want to say it all the time. And so if you hear me say the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, it means the same thing. A second point to make is the meaning of the word kingdom. As it is commonly used in modern speech, a kingdom is a territory, an area of land. The kingdom of Britain, for example, is a territory that belongs to Britain. But in the, in the New Testament, the kingdom of God or heaven is not a territory which belongs to God. Rather, it is the sovereignty, the lordship, the rule, and the reign of God. In Jesus, the kingdom was embodied, right? And so it's not about land. It's about God himself. I mean, God owns the whole world, right? And so he doesn't need that. And so that's why the kingdom it's God's sovereignty, his reign, and his rule over us. And so the idea of the kingdom of God, the sovereignty of God, was the conception which was the central message of Jesus. He emerged upon men with the message that the kingdom of God was at hand. Most of Jesus' sermon in the gospel is about preaching about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. And so to preach the kingdom was an obligation that was laid on Jesus. And we can see that from our passage in Luke chapter 4, verse 43. It was the message of the kingdom that Jesus took to the towns and the villages of Galilee. The announcement of the kingdom was the central element of Jesus' teaching. Jesus was all about preaching about the kingdom of God. And so the question we will ask is, why was preaching about the kingdom of God central to Jesus' teaching? But I think before we answer this question, it is important to look at what the kingdom looked like that Jesus was entering. What was that kingdom like? And what makes the kingdom that Jesus was introducing different? The kingdom in which Jesus lived was the kingdom of Rome, right? The New Testament world is the world of Rome. And the primary aim of the Roman government was first, the maintenance of Romans' peace within its borders. And then second, the maintenance of a, of a system whereby food and revenues from taxes made their way to the center of the Roman world, Rome itself. This is what Rome cared about. And so taxes, 
Taxes was a huge thing. Roman Italy was exempt from paying taxes, right? Because Rome had a lot of conquered territories. But if you are living in Rome, the center of the kingdom, you didn't have to pay taxes. But also, if you are part of a territory of Rome and you are an urban elite, there are ways for you not to pay taxes. And so the consequence that the burden for financing the empire fell on the poor people, people that were living on a subsistence level. And so approximately 16% of your gross income was taxed. And if you were a Jewish farmer, you were also supposed to pay tithes for the temple. And at the end of the day, when you get your monthly income, you end up paying at least 40% of your income in taxes. And then you have taxes on tolls for transported goods and taxes on other things that Rome just felt like you had to pay. So imagine being a tax collector in that kingdom. What did people think of you? You guys remember the story of Zacchaeus or the story of the rich man, right? In that kingdom, if you were a Jew, you hated the tax collector because they were so corrupt and all they cared about was making money for themselves that you were treated as an outsider, right? But what did Jesus do when he came? He was hanging out with those same people that nobody wanted to do anything to do it, right? And so in the kingdom of Rome, there were people that were marginalized. But in the kingdom of heaven, God accepted everyone, even the worst of the worst. But what was life like for the ordinary people? Most of the population of Palestine lived in villages and small towns where they worked the land as farmers. An old proverb portrays peasants as people standing permanently up to their necks in water so that any disturbance in water will be sufficient to cause drowning. This is not to say that the peasants live in constant worry or anger about their lot in life, but it is to point the precarious life at the subsistence level. And so if you are a farmer, each year the harvest must be sufficient to produce enough seed for the following, seed, for the following year, for the household to eat or to trade for necessities like salt and paying taxes. In addition, each household faced certain ceremonial or social obligations, like if your daughter was getting married, you had to pay for the wedding. So under these circumstances, even the partial failure of a crop might result in the loss of standing in the community, the loss of relative independence as a family unit of production, or even the loss of life due to starvation. And so against such a background, when Jesus shows up feeding the 5,000, what do you think that meant to the people? It was a big deal, right? 
when we know of the context, when we know of what life was like for those people in the Roman kingdom, and here was Jesus having compassion on these people who were yearning to hear about the kingdom of heaven, but knowing that they were hungry and stopping what he was doing to feed them. What was Jesus trying to do? He was trying to show that the kingdom of heaven is not all about somebody giving everything that they have. It's about God giving also to his people, especially the poor and the needy. Another thing to consider during the time of Jesus is the temple. Within Judaism, holiness and purity were interrelated, and they found their special focus in the temple in Jerusalem. And the emphasis on relative holiness was correlated with relative purity or ritual cleanliness and thus the status before God. And so if you're a leper, you weren't allowed into the temple because you were unclean. You weren't even allowed in the cities. You had to live in the outskirts of town. And then here comes Jesus hanging out with lepers, healing them. And so in that kingdom, lepers were outcasts, but in God's kingdom, everyone is included. And so as the abode of God, as the link between human and divine, and as inviolable territory, the temple provided the center point around which human life was to be oriented. With its system, it restricted spaces and the temple brought together the concept of holiness and relative purity. And so Gentiles were to be separated from Jews. Jewish men from Jewish women. Jewish priests from non-priests. And then if you're a Jew, if you're a Gentile, you were separated. But that is not what the kingdom of God was like. Think about the Samaritan woman, right? Jesus was just sitting, and the Samaritan woman comes to him trying to get water. And they started talking. And when his disciples came, they were shocked. Why are you talking to a Samaritan woman? She is an outcast. But it didn't matter to Jesus, because in Jesus' kingdom, everyone matters. Everyone matters. No one is an outcast. Another element of the Roman kingdom was the father figure. Some of you are thinking, what does that have to do with what I'm talking about? Well, listen to this. The authority of the Roman father was legendary in the Roman world to the point that at the birth of his children, whether the child was born to his wife or a slave woman did not matter. A father was able to determine whether that child will be raised within his household or to be given for adoption or sold. His legal authority over the child's life and death continued as long as the father lived. And to this, he added his right to scorch the child, pawn the child, allow or refuse the child's marriage or divorce, maintain the child's property as his own, or sell the child into slavery. If you were a father back then, you were kind of like a god in your own home. And so in a father-oriented society like this, children like slaves were among the weakest, 
most vulnerable among the population. They had little value as reality that is perhaps it is because of the high likelihood that most children didn't survive adulthood in that empire. And even if women procured their place in the household by bearing children, especially sons, the children themselves were of very low status. And so given this reality, it is very surprising to find the New Testament writers referring to God as Father. But what's even crazy was Jesus encouraging the little children to come to him because you have to be like a child to enter the kingdom of God. Like what? Children? I mean, they're loud. We hear them at the back. Why do I have to be like a child to enter the kingdom of God? But that is what Jesus said. Because in his kingdom, the children mattered. But in the Roman world, in the Roman kingdom, children had no value. So why did Christ spend most of his earthly ministry proclaiming the kingdom of God? Because his kingdom is not like that of Rome. His kingdom was different. And Jesus proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God because the people longed for an alternate kingdom. They were tired of being ruled by outsiders. Egypt, Babylon, Syrians, the Greeks, and now Rome. They wanted to be ruled by God. A kingdom where Yahweh ruled and not the Romans. A kingdom in which God dwelt with his people, walked with them, and talked to them. A kingdom the poor can find relief. Lepers and unclean are welcome into the community of God. And even Gentiles like Samaritans. And a kingdom where children are treated with respect. And a kingdom in which everyone has access to God. And can you even imagine when Jesus was preaching about the kingdom of God and how joyful the people were receiving that news because they know it's a revolutionary kingdom different from the one that they're used to? That is why the kingdom of God was good news to the people back then. Well, fast forward thousands of years. Is the kingdom of God good news to us today? In our current context, what is our kingdom like? And how does it compare to the kingdom of God? What is our world like? I spent about 30 minutes on the internet, you know, just trying to see what, how people describe our world. And this is what I came up with. This is a, this is a description of our world. Are you ready for this? We suppress the truth by our wickedness. We neither glorify God or give thanks. Our thinking is futile and our foolish hearts darkened. We claim to be wise, but rather become fools. We exchange the glory of God for images. Women exchange natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. And in the same men, men abandon national, natural relations with women or are in, and are inflamed with lust for one another. We do not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. 
we have depraved minds. We do what we ought not to do. We fill our hearts with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. We are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. We are gossipers, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. We invent ways of doing evil. We disobey our parents. We have no understanding no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although we know what is right, we continue to do the things that are wrong, but also approve of those who practice them. Does that sound like the world we live in? You know where I got this? From Romans chapter 1. That was the kingdom back then, and yet it describes the kingdom we live in today, right? And so, if it was happening back then, and God brought the kingdom of the good news back then, don't you think we need the message, the kingdom of the good news today? So why is the kingdom of the good news? Why is the kingdom still good news for us today? Because we have access to the kingdom of God. Because we have access to the kingdom of God. We have access to another kingdom that is not of this world. In the Gospels, the kingdom is often spoken of as something which has come. Something that has not emerged from history but which has invaded time out of eternity, something which has not arisen from earth, but which has descended from heaven, something which is in no sense an achievement or attainment of man, but which is entirely the gift of God and the work of God. This is the good news of the kingdom for us today. And so when Jesus healed the demon-possessed man, he said, If it is by the finger of God that I cast out this demon, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God has come upon us. We have the kingdom of God with us today. But secondly, not only does Jesus within his own person demonstrates the kingdom, he also enables us to enter into the kingdom. He gives us access into the kingdom. He removes the barrier between God and man. He cancels the power of past sins and by his spirit and presence enables man like us to overcome present sin, to overcome the current kingdom that we're living in. He thereby enables man also to accept and obey the will of God and so enter the kingdom of God. That is why the kingdom is good news for us today. So what now? How do we enter into the kingdom of God? If we regard the kingdom as entirely given, as entirely the gift of God, which it is, it remains that the teaching of Jesus lays down certain very definite conditions regarding entry into this kingdom. 
And what were some of the conditions that Jesus said? Jesus said, no man can enter the kingdom without a childlike spirit. No one can enter the kingdom without a childlike spirit. And you can find that in Matthew chapter 18, verse 3. Let the little children come to me. And you have to have a spirit of a child to enter into the kingdom of God. What makes children special? Their total dependence on their parents, on the people they look upon. And so like children, our total dependence has to be on God, not on the worldly things that our world affords us today. And then Jesus said, no man can enter the kingdom of God without the forgiving spirit. And you can find that in Matthew chapter 18, verse 23 to 25. You cannot enter to the kingdom of God without a forgiving spirit. Forgive. As Christians, we are, called that, we are called to do that every single day. Forgive no matter who begrudges you. And then Jesus adds again, No one can enter the kingdom of God without a certain attitude to his fellow man. You can find that in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 to 46. If this attitude... To man, it's an insensitive awareness of the needs and the sorrows of others. He is shut out of the kingdom of God. If a man will enter the kingdom of God, his life must be a demonstration of love in action. And then lastly, no one can enter the kingdom of God without a certain standard of righteousness. And Jesus said the Christian standard of righteousness must exceed the scribes and the Pharisees for you to gain entry into the kingdom of God. But luckily for us, our righteousness doesn't have to supersede, to exceed that of the scribe and the Pharisees because Jesus' righteousness is enough for us. If we believe in his death, and his resurrection. And that is why we eat communion every Sunday. We eat communion to remember what was done for us. The righteousness that Jesus imputes in us. The righteousness that gives us access to God and his kingdom. And that is why when Jesus, before he was betrayed... During the Last Supper, he gathered his, his disciples and broke bread with them and said, This is my body that is broken for you. When you eat, remember, remember, because you were bought at a price. Remember my death. And he took blood and did the same. Drink this. This is my blood for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink this in remembrance of what I have done for you. And that is the goodness. That is the goodness of the kingdom. The blood and Jesus has given us access. And we eat communion every Sunday to remember the access that we have. We eat communion to remember God's kingdom, a kingdom that is so much better from the kingdom around us. 
And so as we prepare to eat communion uh, this morning, open up your heart. Invite God in. Just let him in. The kingdom is accessible to you. The kingdom is Emmanuel, God with us. And so enjoy God. Enjoy his kingdom this morning. It's going to be communion at the back. I'm going to pray, and then we will uh, have communion. Let's pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, thy power, and thy glory forever and ever. Amen.